The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.
So yeah, we've had a lot of buildup, Dr. Kuntz, on uh, conversations both in the Discord and through a couple of emails. And so while I'm, I'm really curious to talk about uh, the destructive capacity of war, and that, that sounds like a really viable topic for the days that we're living in, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, we have a couple other things to, to go into. But maybe the first one is, is sure. kind of directly connected to that. And that is to distinguish our conversations in the last couple of weeks uh, about Ukraine and Russia. And that could also apply to say, I've, I've talked about this on Stop the White Noise Saturday mornings, uh, my Twitter feed, I'm definitely retweeting things that I don't necessarily have full agreement with, but which I consider newsworthy bits coming out of uh, these various areas. I read an article on the American Sun recently by BAP, uh, if you know who he is, um, uh, Bronze Age, and I'll just leave the rest of it there, uh, talking about um, European nationals defending the homeland and being taken for a ride. By So like, like I'm trying to read a lot of different things, and uh, I'm not yeah. really trying to get personally involved in Ukraine or Russia, because it has nothing to do with me personally, even though, uh, as I've said other places, I met some Ukrainian Lutherans at a Corpus Christi event in Sweden a couple years ago, and and God be praised, they're Christians, and they're they're over there right now, right? So I don't want to diminish that, um, but somehow it seems that the, the line between personal investment in news because of personal connections to that and yeah. abstract dis discussion about the state of the zeitgeist that we're living in for the sake of right. where we are right now, that right. that's something that we really want to dwell on a little bit more, regardless of what story we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Because it, I, it's instructive how quickly this happens for people, right? And it is wildly selective. So people who maybe even live within, say, 100 miles of the Mexican border may not have very firm positions on, I don't know, internal Mexican politics, even though that does impact their daily life. Who is coming across the border? How fast? Which cartels are operating where? They, they might actually want to know that kind of stuff. Hopefully, to some degree, their local news sources cover those kinds of things. But now suddenly we all have to have an, uh, not just an opinion, but to take a side. Mm. We have to take a side in a conflict which is neither ours nor comprehensible to us, right? So I'm not even saying that you have to have perfect knowledge in order to take a side. And if you just read a bunch of books, then you would have perfect knowledge and then you could take a side. It's fine to take a side, if you don't have perfect knowledge, it's not fine to ignore the fact that you neither have any particular tangible interest nor very good knowledge. And then to take a side and then to, just like in COVID, enforce that side on me, right? make it a, a, a moral question, right? And that is something that we are going to talk a lot about, not just this week, but in several weeks to come as we talk about the First World War and its aftermath, because it is the enforcement of morality in relationship to dubious, if sometimes necessary human endeavors, such as wars, okay, for all kinds of reasons, that is something of a novelty about our time. And that is not just because of the greater destructive capacity of modern militaries. It is because of the enforcement upon the masses of certain media opinions. And, okay, find me the person who has a deep knowledge of Zelensky's 
career as a comedian prior to being president of the Ukraine and the various entertainment figures that he's installed in his administration. And I don't say that to shame him necessarily. I simply say that to say almost none of us knew anything about these places or the distinction between, you know, the, the ethno-linguistic distinction between Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine. And probably a lot of us still don't know those things. So why are we acting like experts on morality concerning those things? It's, I mean, it's like the most evil thing you can say is I don't know and I can't therefore care. But that is the historic, certainly American conservative position. I don't know and I can't therefore care. It feels like a bit of March Madness where I'm just supposed to root for the underdog. And yep. But then I say that. And then I'm thinking of, again, the, the discussion in Discord, and which I don't want to demean or belittle, that there are people with very real connections to people who are very really actually suffering over there. I, I don't yeah. want to belittle or demean that at all. You mentioned yeah. Mexico. Uh, this morning, I, I retweeted some footage of a narco hit in Mexico that was an absolute war zone just on the other side of the border. And uh, someone who I went to grade school with um, dropped the word racism uh, in regard to the tweet because it was referring to, you know, dealing with stuff on our border versus stuff in Ukraine. And it just it escalated so very quickly. Right. And, yeah. and it's like, but yeah. but isn't this like, shouldn't we kind of be aware of all of it? And then do we really have to pick a side? Your point there, do we really have to pick a side and begin to enforce morality? Or can we um, can we recognize that, for example, uh, when when. Uh, when Putin says, if you withdraw your company from from Russia entirely, we're going to take your stuff like right or wrong doesn't matter. Like that makes sense. He, he's doing what makes sense for him to do. Why would he not do that to you? That, that's what totalitarian regimes do. And so, um, again, rather than trying to be in some sort of virtue position on it, handle the thing a little more like you're like you're, and I don't want to dismiss it as if it's not real, but like you're actually playing a game to win. Because to me, it's like we, we want to just take the right position and then expect that to work out in some sort of moral sense. And I'm not saying yeah. don't take the right moral sense, but we can't take the right moral sense from the other side of the planet, relying on mainstream news and a couple of bits of pieces. Uh, the phrase fog of war has been dropped in a few corners and, and, and you know, we're, fog of war doesn't really apply to us. We're too far away for even the fog of war yeah, to apply to right. us, right? Yeah, yeah. I. It's, it's it's not it's not coincidental that a guy who is getting in a lot of trouble with the institution where he's maybe emeritus might still be teaching to some degree, uh, University of Chicago, uh, John Mearsheimer. It is it is not coincidental that he is getting in trouble for saying what he's been saying for years and years about Ukraine, which is that it is a post-Soviet project of the West with its attendant ills and difficulties, and therefore its failings or failures, or perhaps even its political collapse, should be laid to some degree, perhaps a great degree, at the feet of the Western powers that have promised it a variety of things, are delivering on a very few number of those things. And also that if we're going to have political entities at all that are distinct from each other, we cannot allow one political entity to be controlled by foreign nationals or immigrants from another political entity. Mearsheimer famous, most famously got in enormous trouble 
for calling attention to the fact that the American Israel Political Action Committee is enormous, not registered as a foreign agent, and obviously plays on the ethnic sympathies of many American Jews. Okay. And he just showed that it existed. He didn't say, I mean, he didn't say like, and these nefarious Jews are destroying the world in a coherent fashion. He just said they're here, they're advocating for the interests of a country that is not our country, and we should be aware of this and, and not allow it to control our foreign policy, as in his telling, it had certainly since the end of the Cold War. So I would say the same thing about the Ukraine or Russia. I'm an American. I'm neither Ukrainian nor Russian. I'm not Israeli. So I don't want the maybe legitimate, maybe illegitimate. Look, I'm not claiming to know interests of those countries to control what happens to the bodies, lives, and souls of Americans. That's pretty simple. But like you said, if you post something that does actually concern America, because it's right here, right on our continent that we share with Mexico and Canada, then you're racist because you are, you, I get, I get, cause you don't care enough about a country that's even whiter than ours. I mean, what is that? <laughs> you see how absurd that is. What racist actually means in that person's thinking is that you have a self-interest that you are more concerned about than the interest of somebody half a globe away. Right. Right. So I, I, I think that you see, just like with COVID, you see a lot of things coming together here. And one very salient point is that you are not allowed to have an interest apart from the interest that the media is directing you currently to have. Right. And this just gets replicated everywhere. Right. There, there was no lcms.org slash Canadian truckers, even though that's a partner church body with American pastors in it. And we send Americans to the seminaries in Canada and that materially affected our own people. Okay. And we didn't have anything like that. So we didn't have a position. And I understand that we're saying we don't have a position on the Ukraine, but if you go to lcms.org slash Ukraine, you're going to see a big Ukrainian flag flying. It's not a picture of a war zone. It's a picture of a Ukrainian flag with a war zone. Okay. So we are being controlled by media cycles. And as long as we're going to do that, then also our, in a very practical sense of the word, our doctrine what we're actually telling people is moral or immoral, right or wrong, will be controlled by said media cycles. So if you want to ride on that roller coaster, go for it. You want to go for those wars, go for it. I don't want to do that. Right. I mean, that's really what we're about is getting, stop the white noise, getting off the roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, the article from American Sun again by BAP talked about what effectively is the regular, regulatory capture of European, he was talking to you, but it applies to the U.S., uh, of governments, of states. So capturing the state by parties or groups that are not the state in order yeah. to advocate for interests that are not in the interest of those who make up that state. And that is where this ride continues to go, whether the story is COVID, whether the story is Mexico, whether the story is Ukraine. The point is that right now, we are having decisions made for us rather than being a party to the decisions ourselves. And part of our ability or inability to do anything about it is the emotional lack of control we have over the story. We let the right. stories change us emotionally and we become in that way much easier to manipulate, whether that emotion is fear, whether that emotion is anger. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we become uh, malleable in the hands yeah. of the stories. Um, 
Now, another kind of similar topic, you, you mentioned a guy at a university getting in trouble for talking, and I thought for half a second you were going to talk about Concordia University, Wisconsin, <laughs> and, 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 and the woke issue there. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know that we want to spend a lot of time on this, but just yeah. to acknowledge, uh, the, you brought up the LCMS kind of uh, following the flag, as it were. Um, right. This is just more of the fact that none of our institutions, even though there are good people, in these institutions, none of our institutions have been prepared for the the tidal wave of the culture shift. We've talked about it for 20 years. Culture's changing. Culture's changing. Culture's changing. And oh look, we're just riding the wave now. And and to be aware of that, it doesn't mean stop going to these schools. Maybe it does. Um, it it, it means though. I mean, pull your head out of the sand yeah. and start realizing you got to you got to craft your own narrative here. Yeah, yeah, because there is there is an element of coasting here. And it's, it's not just a coasting. I mean, you could, you could say, okay, well, these schools are captive to financial provision from the federal government. These schools are captive to certain accreditation standards. They're captive to all kinds of things. They are captive to the priorities of certain administrators. You know, Peter Scare has called attention to Gretchen Jameson's work at University of Southern California uh, while she was at Concordia, Wisconsin, on essentially mainstreaming critical race theory at, in the title of her dissertation, a majority white Christian school, and white always being understood there as sort of reprehensible that it's majority white. So you got to fix that somehow. And those things are, I think, valuable, but, but unsurprising, right? And the coasting has existed not just in relationship to broader American society, but I think our church has also coasted on its own heritage, right? So uh, this first occurred to me when I first just had the thought, I think I was still myself in seminary, could Luther get ordained yeah, right. in Missouri Synod? No question. Not a chance. Not a <laughs> right. chance. Too loud. Right. Too loud. And uh, but But that goes even for, you know, I mean, people that are still alive, Right. So not even fathers in any kind of metaphorical sense, but 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 fathers of people who are who are here today, who are active in the church. Could the modern LCMS produce not only its own creeds and confessions, could it produce its anything that's positive about itself? It's it's fairly firm adherence to the doctrine of an inerrant, infallible Bible. That, that firmness of spirit or clarity that, that sets the boundaries for discussion within w- which boundaries we are constantly policing each other for apparently breaking the Eighth Commandment, could we produce people that could actually set those boundaries in the first place? You know, And if you can't, right, if you live on your dad's land, but you don't know how to work your dad's land, do you deserve to live there? Well, you won't for long, right? Once yeah, dad's gone, won't. once right, dad's gone, right. someone's taking it. You'll hand it over, you'll leave voluntarily or whatever, but you know, this is this is something where you have to ask yourself, you know, concretely about our own repentance, like are we actually able even to maintain this is kind of the theological version of is there anybody who can actually fix these bridges or build new bridges? You know, so theological infrastructure, spiritual infrastructure, can we even be the equal of our forebears, let alone respond to the challenges that that we have uniquely? So another topic that we have a very long question that came in via email about, I'm not going to read the entire question, but it, it, it was filled with a, a lot of fair concern 
and I'm, I'm looking at you, Discord, uh, that, that perhaps hiding underneath some of this abstract discussion in hunt of an actual meaty uh, on the ground reality, there's this specter of what you might call Christian nationalism going on, which apparently, and I'm, I'm no expert on this one, I'm going to ask you, um, this doesn't just mean Christians who like their country. Right. And, yeah. and it doesn't just mean even uh, Christians who like their country as it is with the current ethnicities in it that are there. It seems to imply some level of uh, I'm just going to jump all the way to the far end neo-Nazi mindset. So do you yeah. want to talk just for a moment about Christian sure. nationalism, yeah. speak about anything especially that you've noticed in the tendency of, of perhaps our listener base uh, and, and where we definitely <laughs> want to uh, yeah. redirect our energy so we don't waste our time, sure. basically. Yeah, sure. So I, I think that this. Christian nationalism, just just as a phrase, I have only encountered from, and I don't know where the listener got it from, but I have only encountered it as a kind of concern, a, a term of concern in sort of like Christianity Today articles about people to the right of, for example, maybe Russell Moore, formerly of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is that Christian nationalism is the way that they're using to describe any discussion of race, ethnicity, history, who knows what other factors by Christians on the political right. Therefore, I'm not, I'm not really invested in the definition of the term, similar to my lack of investment in the, in, in the term racism introduced into English by Leon Trotsky. And the reason is because I'm suspicious of labels you know, and, and we all know that this is how the label Lutheran starts, but I'm simply suspicious of labels attached by people that seem to be very much not arguing in good faith. Right. right. So, yeah. So that all that being said, this is an enormous difference that I see largely between people like myself who weren't exactly raised on the Internet and broadly speaking, people 10 to more years younger than I am. So that would be mid twenties and younger who, who basically were completely raised on the internet. That is, they are, for example, much more theologically and liturgically knowledgeable. Okay. Things are changing faster. They are much more knowledgeable than I was at the same age. Okay. On the other hand, they are also much more radicalized. Yes. And what I mean by that term is not sort of like a like the way the FBI uses that word, right? For the, you know, the domestic terrorists uh, at the school board meetings, right? But that they seek out partly because of the medium by which the information has come, which is so impersonal. Okay. The internet but also partly because of the nature of the onslaught that they have faced. They seek out you very often the most radical position. Sometimes this is backed up by things that really have no precedent in American political tradition because we did have a separate political tradition from Europe. So their closest precedents will be things that, and it's not going to be coincidental when we work through the things that we're working through in the next several months, positions on ethnic groups, whether it's the Jews or non-whites generally, or positions on the nature of rule, even in the United States. So this is, this is the resurgence of monarchism, really beginning with the neo-reactionary movement on the internet, which is, I mean, I mean, Curtis Yarvin is Jewish, but so you see these things have cross currents. But what I'm saying is 
options are available and are now being held by people that really have no precedent, okay? And that is separate just as a set of political options. That is totally separate from the question of how Christians should discuss questions such as racial difference, ethnic difference, how that does or doesn't line up with political entities. And so when those when when people like that are talking on the discord or whatever or you're encountering them in real life they are coming out of a a, a set of positions that has a deep well of anger mm-hmm. which is partly why they are listening to us because we are identifying things they have also seen okay but also and this is just a problem with anything that comes off the internet honestly also a, a lack of interaction with other people, I guess I would say in real life. So let me give you an example of this. Some of these positions, so discussion of whether ethnicity is constitutive of the state. Can you have a state that is multi-ethnic? Okay, this, is, this, this predates American awareness of these things because it's a question in the Holy Roman Empire, for example. But... That, that question and its resolution along various lines, yes, you can, no, you can't. This is a distinction, if you guys remember from when we talked about the 1920s, that's a distinction between fascism, properly speaking, and national socialism, right? Fascism actually includes Jews. National socialism does not, right? So when you, when you're, you have those kinds of things going on, I guess my plea to everyone, which is also always my plea on the Discord, is basically, if you're not going to listen to each other, just say that up front and move on with your lives and do something constructive. Because if you are going to talk to other people, you have to be patient, right? So I don't, how, how many episodes are we on here? That's right? like 84 or something like that. Yeah, we're way yeah. up there we're now. Getting, we're getting close to 100 episodes. I have I still have not explained something that I say to people in everyday life, which is, I'm basically just an American from 100 years ago. I'm not that strange. My ideas are not really exotic. They are informed partly because of my education by streams of European political thought that are not always, but I mean, that synthesis between European political thought and how to integrate that with American politics has already largely been done by a guy named Paul Gottfried. Okay. So I'm not really presenting anything novel, honest, truly. Okay. I have not explained all of that because I don't really see it as either my need to explain everything that I think to everybody all of the time, nor your responsibility to agree with everything that I think all of the time. Okay. So again, I mean, I can, we can go into some of the theological stuff, which is, which is very complex, partly because we, we haven't discussed these realities by and large in theology, but I would say as a matter of political approach, as well as thinking, if you're going to try to be in a polity of any kind with anyone, whether it's a church or a local government or a national government, you have to have agreed upon terms. If you can't, divorce will come sooner or later, right? It, these things that appear to be simply political realities. And so that, that applies both to, you know, you became, you know, an unironic admirer of Adolf Hitler on the internet. Well, you have to figure out how to explain that to other people or why or why that's reasonable. Just like, let's say that you, you start on this podcast because you had issues with COVID. 
and you've never rethought the kind of basic, like everybody should just get along idea of American life present in the 80s and 90s. Okay. When we had this lull, we really did because the seventies were kind of racially brutal in many parts of American life. Uh, and lots of things, especially since roughly the midterm in Obama's first term. So that's 2010. Things have been pretty brutal since then. So if you're still like, Hey, it's too, you know, it's 1998, like, you know, stocks are going up. Like we can all get along. Like this is America. Like we're past that. If that's where you're coming from, that's fine. But understand that there are other people who have gone through life being told that they're totally evil all of the time because they they came up in public school since Obama. Right. So that that that's my because I know we have listeners all over the place in these kinds of things. And it's not my job to like fix your position on something theologically. I would say that if you are manifesting in your own life. Right. So I. Theological theology is not really separate from spiritual issues. If you are manifesting day to day in your life, rage, anger, wrath, or you're not taking seriously the reality that Christ has brought down the wall of hostility, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Okay. And therefore between Gentiles and Gentiles too. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's largely, honestly, in the ancient world, that's largely a wall of hostility from the Jews to the Gentiles, but it goes sometimes in the other direction. If you don't understand that, if you are reserving wrath against other creatures of God, then you have a spiritual problem. Okay. That is a spiritual problem. It doesn't mean that, you know, whatever, it, that doesn't imply some specific, like you have to let in this many immigrants from these many countries every year. It's not a political question, first of all. It's a spiritual question. There is a distinction because, God, because God's kingdom is not of this world. That's also why we speak much more definitely about theology on the show than we do about politics. <laughs> because God's word makes you certain in a way that like news media and even history books don't make you certain, Right. So I'm not, you know, I, I don't need to say like, yes, America needs to be this much more Hispanic by the year 2050 or something like, like that's, that's silly. And I have plenty of reasons to say that that's not a good idea, but I, I mean, I'm not, you, you can't wake up and harbor rage, anger, hostility at fellow creatures of God and, you know, hold on to that because the not the dividing between nations nations still exist they're admitted as such in the book of acts but the hostility okay the just really arbitrary like we're different therefore you are evil thing that comes in between human groups christ has destroyed that okay so you know if if that's you know you can call that racism if you want to. Again, I'm not investing in that term, but Christ has destroyed the hostility, the rage dividing people from each other, right? And I don't have control over the fact that in the United States of America today, I meet people from really anywhere, depending on where you are, okay? Generally, the burden of what I'm saying is to advocate more for the idea that being white is okay, hmm. because that's the very thing that's most often condemned, but that doesn't mean that I'm therefore angry at somebody for not being white, right? So I guess 
I don't, I don't have a, I've talked for a long time. I don't, I don't have a whole lot more right now on that question, but that's, that's how I have, that's how I, yeah, that's how I myself approach it. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, you made me think of uh, the biblical position is that the tongue and the tribe are beautiful things, that there are many right. of these that are redeemed. They're not abolished. They're redeemed. Right. Yeah, and right. the the concept about you know barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. I mean, I could just see the people in Eph- Ephesus like they're just having their nice Greek church morning, right? And in comes right. this Scythian, uh, you know, with his his skull all misshapen from the head binding when he was a child, and tattoos and whatever. And he's on his big horse, and he's gonna go drink blood with the other guys later. And and you know, <laughs> and they're like, wow, you know, welcome. Uh, this is gonna be awkward for a few weeks. You know, we fi- got to figure this out a little bit. Maybe maybe our kids shouldn't get married right away without some conversation, right? So yeah. recognize that there are distinct cultures is good again but then you're spot on like the the animosity that's in like a blood deep rage that seems to come up when these concepts are discussed um that's something that is is foreign uh to our spirit and we we want to fight against it certainly we all got the flesh we all know that the flesh is going to give us uh, that kind of hatred for some other when it threatens us. Um, but then uh, part of this is then there are those who are being raised in a, uh, a multimedia scenario, uh, the Matrix, and all they have known is threat their entire life, right? And so they're, they're grasping for some form of foundation and, and they're right. finding the, the most polarized position that they can and it seems to be stable to them. But again, to kind of shift this off of the ethnicity conversation, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, and I, I don't mean to pick on anyone specifically, although I kind of am a little bit. It's like, so you realize men and women are different. And so the answer is girdles. They all have to wear girdles. That'll make it all right. If all the women wear girdles, the world would go back to normal. Like, You've polarized yourself. You've put you in a position where you can't really even have a conversation anymore about the idea. And you're actually doing something that's probably harmful to everybody, right? And that's where if you're not, if you're not patient in these conversations, uh, you're going to end up painted into a corner that you don't really want to be in. And, and then you're not really going to win anyone to your side either. So there's, there's a, I hate to sound like the liberal colleague, you know, trying to, to be winsome and all that, but. Sometimes I wonder if the problem with Discord is just there aren't enough English majors because, you know, you're all texting each other in this thing rather than, you know, taking some time to really craft how you're saying what you're saying, recognizing it's going to be read by people who don't know you, don't care about you and think you're an idiot already. And you're trying to win them over. You got you. You want you. You think you're right, right? I mean, I yeah. think I'm right when I say something. So sure. I'm going to try to say it in a way that's going to convince you, not just assert. Now, here's Luther, right? What would Luther do? He'd fire off how you're like the, you know, the 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 uh, mouse droppings in the pepper, and then then that's it, you know. Um, but you know that doesn't work right now. That doesn't work yeah. right now. And I hate yeah. to be pragmatic, but it, it's true. Well, I I think yeah, pragmatic is. Pragmatic is not bad if you're trying to build something. So if you're trying to build something, then you're going to reserve, you're going to reserve judgment. You're going to reserve everything that you could say. Remember that Luther has the luxury of being a celebrity with special legal protections who's after a certain point in his life, whose every word is being recorded, right? So he has some of the freedom that people have on the internet, especially when they're able to be anonymous, which, I, which I'm not condemning. I mean, I've been very clear about that, but that alters the way that you behave when you are exercising that freedom to be anonymous, probably to critique something you couldn't otherwise critique, which is fine, but it's not the same thing as being, as we talked about in the difference between managers and fathers. I mean, and there's a reason that I am not anonymous on the internet. 
I mean, BAP hides his voice on his podcast, right? For whatever reasons he has, right? I'm not anonymous because I want to be held responsible for what I say and for what I do. When you're doing that, you have to reserve yourself in many ways. And I don't, I don't mean that like policing yourself in order to maintain res- respectability. I mean that you're reserving yourself for the sake of the other person that you're talking to or the people for whom you're responsible. And when you do that, you're doing that because my greatest satisfaction in life as a father is not to see my children acknowledge that everything that I'm saying is right at any given point. It's to see them flourish. I, I, you know, right. What is my greatest joy? My, my greatest joy is to see my children walking in the truth. That has to do with a way of life that they're leading that I have taught them. It is not in its essence, an acknowledgement of how right I was about everything. Okay. So that doesn't mean that I'm wrong. (laughs) It means that I'm not setting up my life with them around moments of acknowledgement of my rightness. This is also the way that I behave as a pastor and as a friend and, and other things that I, that I do with my life. So when I think about it that way, then I don't need an acknowledgement right now that, you know, I and the person I'm talking to have utter agreement on how the South was treated after the American civil war, you know, like whatever, right? Like, like whatever it doesn't, like, it doesn't matter right now. It doesn't matter if they know as much as me, or if I can, you know, do as much as them in some realm of endeavor. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Life is not a series of confrontations in which I hope to come out proven correct. That's not life, right? But it is Um, Lutheranism. Yeah, it is. Uh, So our listener base is both highly intelligent and highly Lutheran. And the tendency for both sets of human beings, especially when those two things are, are brought together, is for a certain justification by correctness of opinion. Yeah. Which is why, which is why our listener base, credit to them, are at least intellectually flexible enough to get to strange political positions. Notice that the mainstream of behavior, especially in official Lutheranism, is justification by respectability. <laughs> okay. So it's, you know, lcms.org slash Ukraine. It's, you know, the Wisconsin Synod just sort of generally agrees all their churches should be shut down. Okay. These types of things. It's justification by respectability because they're smart enough to realize what the correct opinion is supposed to be and Lutheran enough to want to have the correct opinion, even where the word of God says otherwise, like your church should be open, but the correct opinion, the respectable opinion is to be closed. So that's the way it's going to go. You have to realize that justification by faith entails certain ways of life that are heedless of the opinions of men. Okay. Also your own, (laughs) right? And I, you know, if I could, if I could just get five more people every day to allow themselves, I mean, in their own internal mental processes, to allow themselves to look bad to themselves sometimes, <laughs> that is to be just a little humbler than they were yesterday. I mean, we would, we would turn the world upside down. Because if you can look bad to yourself, even in your own opinions or the way they're presented, then you are, you can actually repent. 
not only in some as some sort of liturgical ritual, but in the way that you say things or in the opinions that you hold. And then you are open to godly change. And that's wonderful, wherever you're starting from, right? Wherever you're starting from, on whatever issue. And that's really all I'm asking of anybody is, is openness to godly change. That's, that's it. I don't need you to agree entirely. I don't need you to track entirely. I don't need you to listen to every episode or listen to it twice. But openness to godly change is absolutely necessary. That's that's going to be our hope for the future. Uh, your definitions of Lutheranism are far more helpful than the ones I asked about way back, where you gave us like the, <laughs> it's really okay. great. You know, justified by correct opinion. It is it is such a struggle for us right now. I think that we've been so right in so many arguments for so long about what is effectively a legal. I don't mean legalistic, but I mean a scholastic, a lawyer approach to the Bible argued in state courts throughout the late medieval world for the sake of maintaining the visibleness of the church. So we were right about all of those things. But right now, we're in a very, very different conflict. And it's not that the justification of the sinner before the angry God is not what that conflict's about, but it's not about the scholastic philosophical understanding of the conflict. Uh, it, it is about something very more uh, visceral, I think I would say. Um, now, this isn't a direct tangent, but the, the one other opening question I still have for yeah. you here then yeah. is I from this gentleman who's reached out to both of us about building something. You mentioned building something, uh, yeah. uh, building something that would be an intentional Lutheran Christian community. Uh, we'll just kind of leave where off the table. But the, 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 the piece that he talked about that struck me most was the thing we're missing is a pastor who wants to do it. Okay, well, that that's interesting. I bet you could probably find that and the funding. And then the question was, you know, where could we find the funding? And this... <laughs> I just uh, asked the LCMS that question. You know, you're back in institutional mode at that point. You're not going to find funding is my my immediate answer. You're going to do it or you're not going to do it. Uh, You're going to you're going to figure out how to do it yourselves uh, or it's not going to happen because there are not there are not billions of dollars floating around in order to make Lutheranism survive. There, there just isn't. Nobody cares that much. Uh, are there some Lutherans who maybe could help here and there? Sure, there are. But the idea that anyone's going to take your radical project and start it within the, the the bastion of the LCMS, again, we're those who like to say, oh, that's a fascinating abstract idea. It's, it's a little off the wall. That sounds like something we could write an article about and discuss in a meeting for a couple of years. But you want to risk you, you want to maybe lose the money? No, no, we're not going to do yeah. that. And that's, this is the water we're in. I'm not, I'm not trying to like say good or bad. I'm just saying, it's back to the Ukraine, Russia thing is just acknowledge the waters you're in and the waters you're in is if you want to start your own community, you're going to just have to do it. And by the way, we're trying in Rockford. So if, if you don't want to go to the other place, cause you can't, you could check us out. Your comments though. And uh, yeah. And uh, I've talked to this gentleman, Josh Schweigert and what what I said was that his project is 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 actually one of the bases of the of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, right? So there is a colony founded that that fa- that largely fails or fails in its original incarnation in Missouri. The one that doesn't that is less well remembered are the colonies that are founded with under the impetus of Wilhelm Leia with pastors chosen by him in, in Michigan, right? So this starts as Frankenmuth, the courage of the Franks or Franconians, 
Franken Luss, Franken Trost, so on. And those places are still around and they are, they are zoned or originally laid out at least so that the church is at the center of the village. The people around them have these, I mean, we actually have the same kind of zoning in Pennsylvania originally, these long, deep lots so that everyone can be close together, but can still farm behind the house. This has been done before. The thing I would say is that when it was done before, it was done, like Pastor Fist said, on the initiative of the group. It was not done with authorization, total planning, and total oversight. So I think that we sometimes, and I, I actually don't think Mr. Swigert is, is, is thinking in this direction, but the thing that prevents initiative a lot of times, and I'm most familiar with this in talking to people about planting churches, which I've been advocating in the United States for a while publicly, at least five years at this point, that people think about this, that they do it, that it happens, that they think of it as normal and obvious and natural. People want someone to tell them how to do it. I get that on a certain level, a certain amount of planning is good for everything, but finally you have to do the thing that you see needs to be done. And that's exactly what the settlers in these colonies in Michigan did. They risked it, they went, they did it. And, and from those places, they, they also evangelized the Ojibwe pretty successfully for a while. So none of this is antithetical to the church's need to spread the word of God. I don't really see education of our Christian children and what we call evangelism or outreach as, as utterly distinct. It's all the proclamation of the word of God to a human being. It might have to be differently targeted. It might take longer or shorter, but it's all the same thing. These strategies for not only survival, but flourishing, I want to encourage. What I most want to encourage is a daring spirit. Amen. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what we need. <laughs> yeah. And if God gives that to you, a daring spirit, then nothing can stand before you. If you have still a spirit of timidity or a desire for authorization or respectability, you will, of course, fail. Yeah. And you're going to lose respectability the moment you try because somebody, yep. somebody's going to tell you you're wrong. And I can firsthand experience <laughs> so right. far. First experience. Be yeah. And, and as one who, um, what we're doing in here in Rockford with, with the Hebrew Collegium concept, um, mm. this came out of an external funding that was going to be for my media presence. I was approached, do you want, here's, here, I want to give you money for your media presence. And I basically said, no, if you're, if I'm going to get, take money right now, it's going to be for founding something for this community here locally. Yeah. That's going right. to be probably a school in some way. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I've heard from people, this is great. And I've heard from people, you're doing it wrong. Why are you doing that? So I, you're going to get both of those things. And I can tell you every day as I get up and think about it, because it's just, it's next door. Like it's, a, it's across the street from my house. Okay. So I, I get up and I can't ignore what's already been invested. It's right there in my face. And I feel like I'm failing because all we're doing is painting some rooms in a house, right? It doesn't feel like the foundation of Frankenmuth, right? Um, but I also know that that's the next step in just doing it, right? And then the next step is asking, calling out for people who want to come and help and then believing that there will be some or it won't work out. It might not, right? Yeah, but that somehow right. on the other side of it not working out, Jesus will still be my God and there will still be a church here and we'll be stronger for what we have learned together through this process. 
Yeah. I mean, all of this can be thrown into a mix by what nuclear bombs, uh, economics collapse, the dollar goes to zero. I mean, it. You just have to start doing what's in front of you right now, and you have to again that daring spirit to say, um, "This life, this life doesn't not have risk." And that, that we've trapped ourselves in thinking we can play it safe. And that respectability concept again, you know, it's as if if we just kind of hold our heads up high enough and walk lofty enough, everything will turn out fine. I mean, they're coming for our kids in kindergarten right now, you know? Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the angry housewives of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1980s have been utterly vindicated over the past uh, 30 some years. They were called alarmists back then, but... Um, <laughs> the uh the angry the angry moms of the christian right have been proven utterly correct about the course of the future so pay attention to those moms so then just kind of randomly right how, how does one go about uh, left turn everybody okay you ready left turn <laughs> how does one get oneself into a destructive war like should you want to how how would you do that <laughs> yeah implying we're not already there what we're looking at and you know i I kind of love the cleanup episodes because they're more random. I, I have no idea what I'm going to say, but also because they they make connections for me that I wouldn't otherwise have made. So we're starting, it's going to be multiple weeks on the First World War and its aftermath. And this is, this is tracking with the general outline of Carol Quigley's tragedy and hope. If you haven't picked it up, you should take your time reading it. There's tons of detail. It's very informative. But a connection, for example, between, you know, ultimately the, the resemblance, both in behavior and to some degree uh, outcome for the peoples they control between the Soviet Union and the United States of America, both ending up in their late stages with deaths of despair in nations overseen by perhaps entirely senile figureheads. How do those resemblances happen? If I hadn't been able to go back and kind of reframe how I looked at history and see how important to the people at the time, but also the people before, during, and after the Second World War, that the First World War was, I would not have been able to understand why resemblances could occur in the regimes that took over the world after the Second World War, because I wouldn't have seen those continuities between what what was happening, you know, say between 1939 and 1948, 49, when you you have a pretty much a stabilization between the Soviet Union and the United States as the major opposing powers, I could not have seen the continuities that that I now see between that world and and the one that that launched us into the First World War. So those those resemblances, those connections, how or why is is our regime uh, creating young men who have been told their whole lives how evil they are because they're white or males or whatever. Those connections I, I had not seen until diving back into these things really to prepare for this. Because one way to get yourself into a destructive war is to be taught to have a very desperate attachment to very, very abstract things. And that is something that we got started with on this show, partly out of COVID, both as a concrete situation and also as a set of media talking points that seemed like an overwhelming and constant regime, you know, with the coronavirus case and death counts a part also of your weather app. 
So as those things happen, you, you think to yourself, why, like, why is it like this, right? Like when did someone just decide that, you know, being white is evil and, and how would they spread that idea? Well, they would do it in many of the same ways that you would get people into a war. So probably two tracks that we want to just look down, if not go down in the time that remains to us today are the tracks of diplomatic buildup. And then on the other hand, information buildup to the world, to the first world war. The track of diplomatic buildup is the one that you're going to find, if, especially if you pick up a history of the first world war, you'll find narrated in much greater detail because it's in some ways easier to track as convoluted as the events might be. So there's a month precisely between the assassination of the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, on June 28th, 1914, and the declaration of war by Austria-Hungary upon Serbia on July 28th, 1914, which will then, for reasons that we'll probably get into next week or even later, will then basically lead inevitably to war between pretty much all of the European powers over the next month's time from July 28th because of the sets of what would be in George Washington's phrase, entangling alliances that they're engaged in. There's a diplomatic buildup to all of that, tracking back at least nine years. Now, the causes of it are deeper than that, but there are there is almost constant crisis between one, one European power and another, and usually multiple from about 1905 down to 1914. They're, they're actually, most of them are called crises. Some of them are actual wars, war waged on Turkey, war waged on Bosnia, much of it in Southeastern Europe. The reason it matters diplomatically is that by 1905, there are really two sets of powers. The Entente, which is, will come to be called the Allies, in the world war and then the alliance both of them with the adjective triple in front of them and the alliance will actually fall apart in 1915 and so after that point it will just be the central powers germany and austria hungary because italy has dropped out and has joined the side of the allies those things have deep diplomatic reasons for their existence okay and i want to i want to stress this at this point before, if you're interested, we go into any kind of narration about those things or how German unification plays into it, is that the complexity of the variety of national interests and even intra-national interests. So the difference in Austria-Hungary between what an Austrian wants and what a Hungarian wants and what a very large ethnic group without formal representation within the crown in the same state, the Slavs want, is very different. Understanding of that complexity and allowance for complexity in human affairs, and therefore reticence, reluctance, slowness, certainly a hesitation to engage in any kind of moral preening about war is, I think, a hallmark of sober, intelligent thinking about foreign affairs and military affairs. So what I'm representing and the way that I will narrate all of this over the next however many weeks to come is what within the terms of American political debate would be called a realist foreign policy 
position. So if you want to look up more about that, John Mearsheimer is, is a certain kind of a realist. Very seminal for my own thinking is the work of George Kennan, who came to prominence after the Second World War within our foreign policy establishment. That would be placed in opposition to what is really mainstream at this point within our own media, as well as both political parties, which is something idealistic, you might call it, fairly concretely in the past 50 years in American foreign policy, it's been called neoconservative. And that is the idea that foreign policy, and therefore also, at least implicitly and often explicitly, the military, that is human beings' lives, should be risked for the sake of essentially ideal, idealistic goals, the establishment of a democracy, preservation of a democracy, the moral integrity of Belgium in the case of the First World War and Britain's engagement with it, that these sort of somewhat abstract, I'm trying to be charitable, <laughs> somewhat abstract, I would say dangerous, dangerously abstract, moral positions should be the hallmark of foreign policy. You can recognize that this is the way that Ukraine is discussed. Innocence is presented. Little girls and grandmothers holding weapons are presented fighting off generally unpictured Russian soldiers. Okay. And so there is for every neoconservative, a clarity about who is good and who is bad, even down to, you can hear in the way that our politicians discuss this, good guys and bad guys, sometimes even framed in the terms of a 1950s Hollywood Western as black hats and white hats. And that that's the way that foreign policy is thought about. Whereas the more that I study, the more infinitely complex it all becomes. So that, that diplomatic buildup is extremely complex involving the national interests and ethnic interests within nations of dozens and dozens of parties just on the European continent. It just makes me think of the word NATO. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, you could cynically say, well, okay, NATO is just a representation of American foreign interest, but it's not. <laughs> it's, it's not any longer entirely. And, but when you, when you have these kind of big groups NATO Warsaw Pact or NATO Russia, you're going, the, the more that these things can be simplified, the easier the information buildup becomes for parties invested in a war actually happening, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you have the diplomatic buildup, you also have the information buildup. And I guess we'll be kind of wrapping up on this one for, for this week because the information buildup is, and, and Quigley is clear about this, the information buildup is much more indeterminate than the diplomatic buildup. So the diplomatic buildup is going to have to do not just with understanding what alliances exist and what strength they have and why they exist. So for example, Britain and France draw closer over time because of Britain's concerns about Imperial Germany's naval buildup. And so the British say, look, you know, we're both allied with Russia. Maybe we should sort of be allied with each other. We'll take care of Germans in the North Sea so that if we go into a war, Germany's ally Italy, which is obviously solely a Mediterranean naval power, you can take care of that. The French fleet can take care of that. So they draw closer for that reason. Diplomatic buildup is not actually easier to understand in an intellectual sense, but it's at least more tangible. 
because it has, because it has to do with tangible things such as in the present day, let's say, does Germany need Russia's natural gas? <laughs> okay, that's tangible, right? Information buildup is much more suspicious, but it works much faster. So if I, if I can go all the way back to 1905, but from 1905, I can go back to say 1902, or I can go back to 1873, or I can go to 1890. I'm just naming years in which assorted treaties occur between powers that will eventually be at war together or at war with each other by 1914, by that summer. Then at least I can say, okay, well, here's why this happened. And the Germans and the British actually agreed very early in 1914 to split their influence in Mesopotamia. And that was good, such that the spring of 1914 was actually really strangely calm diplomatically. Diplomatic buildup, because it involves tangible interests, takes much longer. Okay. So you could even say, well, the First World War is something is going to happen on the European continent as soon as Germany becomes unified in 1871 for the first time as a nation state, right? So if you want to be really edgy and quippy, you could say Otto von Bismarck causes the First World War, even though he's dead before it happens, right? Well, I've heard that it was his death that did it, but yeah, keep going. There you go. Yeah, whatever, right. I mean, when you're quipping, it really doesn't matter if it's true, right? It just has to sound cool. So you do that, but that's a long time. I mean, that's a long, that. That, that's most of a person's life. A person could live and die a, a somewhat respectable length of a life <laughs> between 1871 and 1914. I mean, you know, you'd be going a little early, but still, right? You could have lived some, something of a life. Information buildup can go really fast, even in 1914. So think about how it works today with phones and the internet, right? And once it gets going, it has a power of its own imp like independent of diplomatic buildup, right? So sometimes if you've ever studied the First World War in depth, which unfortunately most of us haven't because we're really just taught about the second one, is that you get, you get, you've got this set of alliances which has gained in strength and kind of hardened up to 1914. And then troops get mobilized. And basically because of information technology, because we're working with telegraphs and railroads, once I mobilize, I'm already moving people toward the front. So I'm already ready for war because a really classic example is, is Germany. I'm already moving people into battle, into battle position by virtue of mobilizing them. Mobilization and, and positioning for invasion are the same thing in the German battle plan that, that kicks off the First World War on, on both their fronts. Yeah, that's true. Okay. But First of all, someone has to get people upset enough for that to be a tenable political position and therefore a tenable military action by a mass army. So how do I get a mass army and how do I get everyone to know that they're supposed to go to war? And Okay, all of that relies on information flows. And so if I want to get into a war that really unlike certainly European war, say what you will about the Assyrians in the ancient Middle East. But unlike most European wars ever, the First World War is a total war. You, you win for, to represent abstract things, the good of the German people, democracy, whatever. And you have to win totally. 
because everyone is invested in the war. So there are, there are wars in the 17th century, the 18th century, even, even the Napoleonic Wars, I dare say, right, are enormous and involve many, many, many European nations. And still, they do not have the destructive capacities and do not mobilize the same numbers of troops, anything like it, enabled by the technological and especially information flows that you get, not only mobilizing militaries by 1914, but also mobilizing populations in support of those militaries, both to enlist, because the British are still doing, they have a volunteer army at, at first, but also to support what is happening, because life will be turned upside down by these wars. So the, this, the technological and specifically the information technological circumstances are, are really what make an unlimited or potentially unlimited, potentially total war possible in which everyone is in some way, even if only in the control over his mind and information, a combatant. Well, to bring that full circle then, right, to the, the first question, aren't we all therefore part of the war in Ukraine and Russia right now? That the information has yep. made us all take sides. Yep. You're yep. willing yep. to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, they they want me to be a combatant, and you know, so this is this is why modern people have so much trouble understanding. Like in colonial America, it's probably the case that you know, fifteen to twenty percent of people actually support the rebels. You know, maybe an equal percentage of a very different social class generally support the crown, and a very large number of people don't care. We have trouble understanding that because we have trouble understanding how you just can say, I don't know, and therefore I can't care. (laughs) Though we have heard of stupid haste in war, cleverness has never been seen associated with long delay. There is no instance of a country having benefited from a prolonged war. Sun Tzu, Chapter 2, 5 and 6. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.